0: Good morning, Tapestry, and happy Easter. Um, This traditionally is the largest, um, most attended, biggest service uh, that churches have each year. This is like the Super Bowl of Sundays. Um, But not today. It's a little different. Uh, All of us unable to gather together. Um, And Easter Sunday, for me, has always been... um, there's been a tension on Easter Sunday for me, uh, and, and there are things that are that are awesome that I love, and then there are things that I just kind of struggle with. one of the, One of the one of the things that I struggle with is that everybody who watches or comes on Easter knows what we're going to talk about, right? Like it's no secret what this subject is going to be. Um, but on the love side of it, there's the energy and the freshness and the hope and the kids that are all sugared up already and those things, and, and so. This Easter is strangely unique, as we are not able to gather together in person, that we're just gathering together digitally, but I do know uh, that my family and I are still going to have our egg rolling competition uh, this afternoon, um, and I know that some of you are disappointed to be missing that. Some of you are excited, <clears throat> Angela, as you get to keep the trophy for another year, um, Hopefully, you and your family are still going to be able to do some of the things that make Easter special um, for you. But but Easter is the biggest Sunday of the year. And as I was thinking about this, I, I realized that even though we don't have the big crowd all in the room, and even though um, everybody's separated in their own in their own home, Sunday Easter Sunday is still the biggest Sunday. And the reason is, is because it has an answer to the question that we've been building towards this whole series, but that we really honed in on last week. And it's a question that everybody needs to ask. And if if you've never asked this question, or if you haven't asked this question in a while, you really should, because Easter points to the answer. And that question is this. Who is Jesus? And this is the question we arrived at last week, but who is Jesus? And the resurrection, that which we're celebrating this morning on Easter, the resurrection is what convinced his first century followers that Jesus was Messiah, the son of God. It wasn't wasn't his teachings, that convinced them, although he had some good teachings, it wasn't all of his other miracles and the things that he did. It wasn't the large crowds that followed him. It wasn't any of those things. The singular thing that convinced his followers that Jesus was who he said he was, was the resurrection. And the resurrection has been convincing people ever since. But it's important to know this. When we're talking about this idea of the resurrection, it's important to know that we don't believe, we as tapestry, me as the pastor, we don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible says so. It's way better than that. It's way more substantial to that. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead because a first century follower of Jesus named Matthew documented it. He documented the entire life of Jesus and the resurrection. We believe that the resurrection happened because a Greek named Mark got the story out of his buddy Peter and had him retell it many times to see if anything changed, to see if it was all together, and he became convinced that the story that Peter was telling was true. We believe that the resurrection happened because a doctor named Luke interviewed as many people as he possibly could find who either had firsthand experience with Jesus or knew someone who did. And in interviewing all of the people that he could find came to the conclusion that Jesus was who he claimed to be. We believe in the resurrection because the apostle Peter left two letters to the church. And in those letters, he declared his belief in the resurrection possibly the most amazing one of all uh, i think a reason that we believe the resurrection is true is because james the brother of jesus was convinced that jesus was his lord and what would it take for you to believe that your sibling was your lord and listen, James did not believe this while Jesus was in his ministry and teaching and doing all these miracles. It was not until after the resurrection that James finally believed that Jesus was Lord. And then he ends up leading the church in Jerusalem until he's eventually put to death and martyred. Then Paul steps onto the pages of history as someone who is determined to end the Jesus movement and to, and to once and for all stamp out this cult offshoot of Judaism. It was his mission. But yet he ends up becoming a person who believes that Jesus was who he claimed to be and dedicated the rest of his life of spreading that message. And this was all documented as well as everything that unfolded in the aftermath of the resurrection and the beginning of the church and how it spread. And all of these writings and all of these documents were collected together and eventually were combined into a volume that we call the Bible. But long before there was a Bible, long before those documents were put together, there were people who were witnesses with, and who were friends of people who were witnesses of the resurrection. But beyond that, the story of Jesus would not be a story worth telling, if not for the resurrection. Apart from the resurrection, Jesus was just another Jewish rabbi gone off the rails. Right? Apart from the resurrection, Jesus was just another wannabe messiah who was crucified by the Roman Empire. And the people who were closest to Jesus, when they were writing this story, they were excruciatingly honest with the way they presented themselves. No one who wrote any of the the parts of the story, none of them wrote themselves into the story as heroes. And the reason they didn't is because none of them were. They they wrote themselves in as doubters. And they did that because they doubted. They expected Jesus, after he was crucified and put into the tomb, they expected Jesus to stay dead. Right? Not a single person, not a single follower, even to the very closest ones, expected resurrection. In fact, quite the opposite. After Jesus died, they began to scatter in fear of their life. And they had, they had determined, they had come to the conclusion that they had been fooled and that Jesus was not who he claimed to be. And that the last three years of their life following him had been a waste. And the problem with Jesus was not what he taught. His teachings were fine. The the problem with Jesus was not what he did. The problem with Jesus was what he claimed about himself, who he claimed to be. And in the light of his death and burial, the only conclusion that they could come to was that who he claimed to be turned out to be a lie. Because clearly, clearly you cannot crucify the resurrection, and the life. It can't happen. You you cannot execute God's Messiah that the Jews had been waiting on for centuries. You cannot put the son of God to death. You can't do it. So clearly Jesus had been lying about who he was. John, in his writings, as we've been going through the book of John throughout this whole series, looking at the miracles and the, the, the signs that Jesus performed, pointing to who he was, John details the events of Jesus's arrest and death. And like all of the others, John had expected a king, not a crucifixion, And so Jesus tells us, or John tells us that after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, just a few miles outside of Jerusalem, that there was a groundswell of support, that there's a groundswell of energy. There were a ton of people who, because of that event with Lazarus, began to follow Jesus. But the problem was, is that it was too many people. Too many people decided to believe in Jesus and to follow him. And this caused a tipping point to which the religious leaders could no longer just let Jesus be. They had to act. And so Jesus' enemies gathered in Jerusalem and they decided that they had had enough, that they needed to put an end to this Jesus thing. And so they knew Passover was coming up. They knew Jesus would be in Jerusalem for Passover and they decided that this was their opportunity. That they, would, that they would keep an eye on him and monitor him throughout Passover. And then as the celebration and the events were over and as people began to dissipate and leave the city, that they would separate Jesus from the crowd and they would arrest him. And they would execute him under the authority of the Roman empire. So as people leave the area of Bethany right after Jesus had raised Lazarus uh, and they begin to move towards Jerusalem, people know that Jesus is coming. They know that he's on his way and he's just raised Lazarus and there's this swell of support and people believing in him and following him. And so as Jesus was coming, there's the excitement of all of the extra crowds gathered in Jerusalem for Passover. The excitement of the celebrations. And and there was always a excitement around Passover because this was a remembrance for the Jewish people of when God delivered them out from underneath the authority or the bondage of the Egyptians. And there was an extra level of excitement because perhaps, perhaps this Passover would not just be a remembrance of God delivering them from the Egyptians, but perhaps with Jesus on his way to Jerusalem and the support swelling around them, perhaps this was the time that there would be someone to deliver them from the bondage they were in to the Roman Empire. And now they were expecting Jesus to declare himself king. As he makes his way into the city, he's greeted, by just crowds and crowds of people. And they're calling out praises to him. And they're calling him king. And the whole thing gets very political very quickly. And he comes, into the, he comes into the city a few days before Passover. And as he gets into the city, leading up to the events, he goes to the temple and he teaches. And he moves freely that week around the city of Jerusalem. And his enemies are kind of keeping an eye on him and watching where he is and making sure that they don't lose him. But he goes to the temple leaders and he talks in the temple and he preaches and they're watching, they're watching, they're watching. And the crowd's just kind of amping up and amping up and amping up. When is he going to make the declaration? And while he's there, Judas, who's one of his 12, kind of begins to lose patience with Jesus. He, he begins to think, maybe this isn't going to happen. And so he goes to the, he goes to the religious leaders and he tells them, he said, I, I can get Jesus away from the crowd. I know this is what you've been waiting on. I can deliver Jesus to you. And then Judas makes his deal. Towards the end of the week, Jesus celebrates his final Passover meal with his disciples. And in that time, the things that he says only increases their expectations that this is the time Jesus is going to declare himself king. But during that meal, Jesus announces that he is creating a brand new covenant. And for the Jewish people who were raised listening to the rabbis teach the Torah and, and, and listening to the words of the prophets. They knew that Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied that there would be a new covenant. And Jesus looks at his guys gathered around the table in, in that upper room for that Passover meal. And he says, now is the time. Now is the time for the new covenant that Jeremiah has spoke of a covenant that would be established. And he says the weirdest thing. He says it would be established in my blood. These guys didn't know what to think of that. They didn't have a category for that. That didn't, that didn't make sense for them. But the terms of this new covenant were to be very simple. Because you see, in that time, the terms of the covenants were complicated. They were intricate. And they were that way because covenants were given and made with very specific people. But the terms of this one would be simple because this wasn't a covenant for a specific group of people. This was a covenant for the entire world. And the, co- and the condition was simple. There was one new command, and that was this. Love each other the way I have loved you. That was it. Love each other the way that I have loved you, not the way you want to be loved. Don't don't love each other the way you've been loved in the past. This isn't a do unto others as you would have them do unto you type of situation. This was a whole new thing. He looked at his guys and he said, I want you to love others the way that I have loved you. And the very next day, he would put on a demonstration of love that blew their minds. And this was to be the trademark of the new movement. This was to be the trademark of the followers of Christ. And so clearly the disciples are sitting around and they're listening to Jesus talk about this. And clearly he's about to do something for the nation. But unbeknownst to them, Jesus was about to do something, not just for the nation, but for the entire world. So after the meal, Jesus retreats to the garden and he takes his disciples with him. And Judas has slipped away to inform the religious leaders that Jesus is now no longer surrounded by a crowd. And Jesus is arrested. And he's taken into the high priest. And he's falsely accused. And he's beaten. And then he's taken to Pilate because they want Jesus executed. And they don't just want him executed. They want him executed quickly. And Pilate, he he talks to Jesus and asks all the questions. And he comes to the determination that Jesus just hasn't done anything that warrants being crucified. But Pilate's main goal is to keep the peace so that he can keep his power. And so hopefully to, to try and strike some kind of balance of not having to crucify Jesus, but yet appease the people, who are calling for his life, he has, Jesus, he has Jesus beaten even more. And then he brings a bloodied Jesus out and presents him to the crowd, hoping that that's enough. But it isn't. The crowd demands a death. And they demand a death because Jesus claimed to be the son of God because Jesus claimed to be a king. And after all, Pilate, mm, I mean, if you are a friend of Caesar's, which I know you are because that's where you get your authority and your power, you cannot turn a blind eye to a man calling himself king inside of the Roman empire. You can't do it. And Pilate realizes his position and he relents and gives in And this is what John says happens next. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus and carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. No details were given because no details were needed. Everyone who would hear this story Everyone who in the first and second century who who would read this or have it read to them knew exactly what a crucifixion entailed. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. And then John records the words of Jesus from the cross. And he gives this detail that seems unnecessary. And it seems like one of those things that would have been easy to disprove if it were not true. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, and this is how John referred to himself. He said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And this was essentially Jesus' way of saying to John, take care of my mom. Take care of her. And these are these are words that carry weight. You don't just look at someone who is dying and they say to you, give one of their last words, take care of my mother. That that's heavy. And then John records the final words spoken from the cross. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And then John does the most unusual thing. Because these are words that you tend to skip right by and kind of not take notice of because they don't seem to be very significant. They don't seem to be words that, that carry any special meaning. <clears throat> but these are extraordinarily important. And these words were for future generations. Here's what he wrote. He wrote, the man who saw it has given testimony and he's referring to himself again. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that, and then it's as if John reaches out through the ages and kind of grabs each of us by the shoulders and looks us in the eye. And he says, he testifies that so that you may also believe. Believe to which we may respond at this very point in the story and be like, well, yeah, sure. All we've got so far in the story, John, is a wannabe Messiah who was executed by Rome. So yes, John, I believe I'm with you, right? I mean, all you have is a wannabe a rabbi who went off the rails and convinced all of his followers that he was a, a Messiah, And the religious leaders finally got a hold of him and had him killed. That's all we've got so far, John. So absolutely, yes, I believe. I'm with you. I believe that. To which John would say, no, no, no. Not that part. The part that happens next. And this is the difficult part to believe, John would say, but I saw it. Verse 38 Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. And he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus bought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, Now, why do this? Why do all of this? The reason is because Jesus was dead and they expected Jesus to stay dead. And then taking Jesus's body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. And this was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. In other words, this was John's way of saying (laughs) they were in a hurry. They were up against the clock because once the sun set, if they were to continue what they were doing, it would have become illegal. And they bury him in the tomb And his followers scatter in fear as they were coming to the realization that they had pretty much wasted the last three years of their life. And everything happened so quickly from the time that Jesus entered Jerusalem to the cheer and the adoration of the crowd to when he was arrested to his death. It all was so fast that they couldn't process it all emotionally, mentally. They were trying to wrap their minds around it and figure out what to do. And on the third day, we don't, know, we don't know where John and Peter hung out for the first day or two. But on the third day, they're awakened by a pounding on their door. And as they awoke, they probably, their first thought was probably, oh my goodness, it's the soldiers. They found us. We're in trouble. Our life is now over as well. But they probably quickly realized that soldiers do not knock. Soldiers enter with force. And so they go to the door and they find Mary Magdalene, one of Jesus's most loyal followers. And through tears and through panic, she says this to Peter and John. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. In other words, she says to him, we went to the tomb and we went to make sure that the body had been buried properly. But the tomb was empty. And when she arrived in an empty tomb, she assumed what every single person who showed up at an empty tomb would assume, what you and I would have assumed. It wasn't resurrection. It was somebody has done something with the body. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb and both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now this is an interesting detail and I find this this rather humorous because John is the other disciple in that verse. And I could just picture John as he's recording his, his memory of these events as he's older, I can picture him maybe just kind of sitting back and thinking back on it and chuckling and probably thinking, well... You know, Peter's long gone. He had been killed by the Roman Empire. Pe- Peter's gone. He's not around to be embarrassed by this. And so I think that people should know that on that day, I outran Peter. <laughs> I, can, I don't know why. I just picture him getting a kick out of it. But John's honest with all of it. Not just parts of that. He's honest about, himself when he gets there he again talking about himself bent over and looked at the strips of lemon linen lying in there but did not go in in other words he says when i got there i didn't go in well why because it was dark and it was a tomb no hero no no hero He was as confused as everybody else. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. And that was such a Peter thing to do because Peter always, he just went right out. He went for it. He didn't wait. Peter always spoke too soon. Peter always acted too soon. Peter was always putting himself out there. So as soon as Peter gets to the tomb, I mean, he just right on in. And John says that they did not see what they expected to see. But what they did see changed everything. And he, Peter, saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And the cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. In other words, the tomb wasn't a mess. Whatever happened to Jesus' body, it wasn't a rush job of people taking it out of there. Thieves would not have taken time to unembalm a body and put that stuff back where it belonged. And so finally, the other disciple himself, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. It's important to remember, he says, I got there first. But yes, I was scared, John tells us. But I finally went in. And then John gives his formula for his readers. And it takes us to the epicenter of the Christian faith. So the other disciple went inside. He saw. And when he saw, he put two and two together and believed. And his world was changed. It it reframed his entire life all of a sudden he realizes that with all of the doubts that he had had the past couple days, that everything that Jesus had taught was true. Everything that Jesus said about God was true. And then suddenly everything started lining up for John because who could imagine such grace and mercy? As he thought back on Jesus, Jesus invited a tax gatherer To be with them. Jesus elevated the dignity of everyone who was around him. Jesus spoke to everyone the rich, the poor, the powerful, the disempowered. And Jesus bore my sin and shame. And this was the message In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It was as if John was saying, as I think back on it and try to understand everything that happens, this is the best way that I can describe it. The light of the world entered into the world and lit the world up for us. And that morning, with what he saw, it all came together. And all of them, all of the close followers would eventually see Jesus risen from the dead. They would eventually have conversations with him, And many of those conversations were recorded, not just by John, but some of the other gospel writers as well. But there's one conversation in particular that stands out because when Jesus was crucified and everybody thought that that it was over, right? When there was no more movement to keep alive, when there was no more teachings that needed to be spread and taught to everyone, everybody scattered, assuming, especially the ones who were the closest to Jesus, assuming that since they were close to him, there was a price on their head as well. And one of those people who had scattered was Thomas. And John gives us this detail of Thomas's first encounter with the risen Jesus. Says so now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas was like, oh, yeah, I'm done. I'm done. I've wasted the last three years of my life following a false Messiah. I am not about to waste the remaining years of my life chasing a ghost. Guys, I'm done. I'm done. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe I I, I love you guys but no I know unless I see it for myself I will not believe a week later his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them and though the doors were locked Jesus came and stood among them and said peace be with you and of course, he said that. He had to say that because he had just scared him to death. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas said to him, My Lord. And my God. And then Jesus told him. It, it was as if he looked at him and said, Thomas, I, I get it. Thomas, I, I understand why you doubt. Thomas, you're just like all of the rest of them. Don't let them fool you. Don't, don't, don't let them give you a nickname like Doubting Thomas. Don't, don't. None of them believed either. This isn't just on you. They all doubted. Until they saw. Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. And then, and this is so powerful, then Jesus immediately leaves his context of what was going on around him. And he reaches out and he speaks to you and he speaks to me. He says, Thomas, You have seen me and have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. That's me and that's you. Thomas, you believe because you've seen, but blessed are future generations who read these accounts, who hear these accounts and believe without seeing. And then John closes his account of the life of Jesus with this. He essentially says, this is why I have written this story. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Easter changed everything because this was the sign. John had recorded all of these other signs, but this was the sign that confirmed Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. Without the resurrection, you and I do not know the name Jesus. But here we are, 2,000 years later, celebrating him. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the light of the world. Jesus, the resurrection and the life. Jesus, Savior of the world. And how do we know this? How do we know his name? It's for no other reason than the resurrection. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for every aspect of what we celebrate today. Lord, I thank you for the witnesses, for the recordings for the preserved texts that brought us this story. Lord, I thank you for the amount of people who made it their life's ambition to once they witnessed a resurrection, a resurrected Jesus, that it became their life mission to spread this news. And 2000 years later, here we are. And we know exactly who Jesus is. Lord, the the extent of grace and mercy and love that was displayed between the cross and the resurrection is beyond my ability to comprehend. But Lord, I am so grateful that you valued us enough to put your son through this, to establish a new covenant, one with which we can come to you boldly, not based on our actions and our behaviors and on ritual, but based on what Jesus did for us. Lord, we are in right standing with you. And I am so grateful. Let us celebrate this morning, and this day, the resurrection of the Son of God. For we are eternally grateful for this foundation on which our faith is built. We thank you for these things. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us this Easter morning. I hope that you are able to have some of your personal Easter traditions still take place in your home. I want to give a special shout out. Thank you to everyone who contributed uh, towards the mission this week. We were able to provide the entire meal for them yesterday. Thank you so much. And I hope that you all have a great week and a great Easter Sunday. See you next week.